Welcome to Five Dubs by MDDC Press. I'm your host, Rebecca Snyder, the Executive Director of the Maryland, Delaware, and DC Press Association, which represents news media in our region. Five Dubs focuses on the who, what, when, where, and why of local news media. We'll talk with the journalists about the stories behind the news. You can find more information about our guests in the show notes or on our website, www.5-dubs.com. Hi, we're here today talking to Brenna Smith, the investigations reporter at the Baltimore Banner. And Brenna, among all sorts of fabulous things that she's been doing, one two best in shows for um, the MDDC contest for work um, highlighted in 2022. She won our best of show for public service journalism. And for the same story, she won the best of show for multimedia storytelling. And it is, so congratulations to you, Brent. I just wanted to welcome you to the program today and tell us a little bit about how you arrived here in Baltimore, because we know you've, you've just been here for a little over a year, maybe? Yeah, actually, it was my year anniversary at the Banner last week, so about a year. Oh, happy anniversary. Thank you so much. Um, it's been a great year. Um, so I came here um, before I was at the Banner. I was um, a fellow at the New York Times on their visual investigations team. And as my fellowship was drawing to a close, and um, I was starting to, you know, kind of have to figure out what to do next. Um, there were a couple factors at play. I mean, mainly I knew I wanted to still kind of stay in the realm of visual storytelling for sure. But um, at the time when I was at the Times, I was helping cover the Ukraine war and a lot of other, you know, conflict monitoring things that is oftentimes what um, the team I was on visual investigations works on. They do a lot of international stories, a lot of conflict stories, a lot of stories about war, which is so incredibly important and impactful and was such an amazing experience. Um, but it was also really draining. And mm. I also think that it was something that, um, I think this type of visual storytelling, we're seeing a lot of different types of like VI like desks prop crop up across national newsrooms, whether it's, you know, at the Post or AP or the Financial Times or BBC or Bloomberg, like it's it's a new type of storytelling that a lot of people are kind of latching onto, which is amazing. Um, and they should be, but you haven't really seen it happen at the local level yet. Um, and so when the banner um, was talking to me about potentially hiring me, their whole pitch was, you know, what if you just tried to do what you're doing at the Times, but here? And that was really exciting to me because nobody was really doing it yet. And it was something that I thought would be a really good challenge. And also, um, would I was just really interested to see if I could kind of take those storytelling tools and apply it to something that wasn't as, you know, innate as other stories that people have been telling using the same tools. Sure. And it is, I think when we look at sort of all the different formats that journalists have available to them now to tell the stories, you know, visually through data journalism, in print, online, interactive, I think there are, it, it's fascinating the way you can show different perspectives in that story. Um, and so 
the the story that you won um, awards for, and and just for those of of our listeners who don't understand the magic and mystery behind the MDDC contest, winning a best of show means that. Um, the best in show winner has it's the top award across all divisions. There's seven divisions um, in our membership and the first place winners of each of those divisions go head to head in each category. So Brenna's story won out over much larger circulation publications, other um, online only publications, pretty much it is best in class. So congratulations to you. And the story that, that we're talking about today is called One Woman's Quest for Justice After Almost $3,000 Worth of Benefits Were Stolen. And this um, is a, a story about SNAP benefits, um, a woman who I, I was blown away by the amount of work this woman put into tracking down who stole those benefits through basically a, a card skimmer. Um, but tell us a little bit about the story and how you got the idea. Was this, you know, did you meet the woman or were you looking at the data trying to personalize it? So how did it come about? Uh, it came about, okay. So it was like, I think my first two weeks at the banner um, and I didn't have a story. I didn't know what I was working on and I was going insane and I didn't have a big investigative idea and all these things. And I went and got coffee with my colleague, Tim Prudente, who also won a best in show. And he took me to coffee and was like, you need to calm down and you need to just like do a story. Like it doesn't need to be a big story or all this stuff, just like get the momentum going. And so I was like, okay, you're right. And so I started going and looking just like my training is I, I didn't come up in journalism in like a normal way. I came from like a weird way where I started by searching online for stories and then talking to people. So kind of back mm -hmm. into it, I think oftentimes other journalists might go about it the opposite way. Sure. Um, so I was on Facebook, just going through different Facebook groups, looking to see if there's anything interesting. And I essentially over a couple comments stumbled upon a Facebook group where a lot of Maryland parents were talking about um, having issues with their benefits. Um, they were having issues getting benefits for their kids, um, for their school time, like free lunches that they were getting throughout the pandemic. Um, but then the same group that was initially dedicated to focusing on um, one benefit, which was the PEBT benefits, which is the free school lunches, um, mm -hmm. pandemic relief funds that people were getting, all these people started posting on that group about their benefits getting stolen. And as I was in the group over those couple of weeks, I saw the group balloon from having like 15,000 subscribers or like members to 20,000 to 30,000. And it was like just growing rapidly because largely because of this issue of people getting their benefits stolen. And so I was like, okay, so there's obviously a story here. Like this is happening to a lot of people and this is horrible. And, you know, I, I wanted to learn more. And so as I was going through the group and I, you know, posted in the Facebook group a couple of times asking people would speak with me, uh, one woman above like all else was super persistent about commenting and messaging and wanting to speak with me. And that was Renee. Um, so that's how I found Renee. And in a lot of ways, Renee kind of found me. She definitely wanted to talk to me. She was unbelievably frustrated with her situation and um, was, you know, and also a lot of like financial stress and turmoil because, you know, when you're dealing with people who are on food assistance, this isn't money that just like, oh, if they don't 
get it. Like, they'll find it. It's pretty intense. I mean, like, that's their food money. That's their grocery budget. Every dollar counts for families who are relying on food stamps to help feed their kids, right? Like, this isn't um, a thing of like, oh, well, you know, the, the choices for them were going to be, do I not feed my kids enough? Or do I get behind on bills and my rent and maybe get evicted? Like these, these weren't like small inconsequential things getting their benefits stolen. And at the time, the state wasn't, wasn't reimbursing at all either. So if the money was gone, the money was gone. Um, and, you know, Renee had had a lot of issues because prior to all of this surge and theft too, um, it's, it's a little bit complicated, but basically like during the pandemic, there were eased restrictions so that mm-hmm. it was basically easier for anybody to get on food stamps. But then over time, they started implementing it to have s- stricter like criteria to get on benefits. And then you had to submit more paperwork. And there were basically a lot of issues where through these, you know, reinstatement of this criteria, um, there was also a lot of bureaucratic, essentially errors that would erroneously kick people off benefits or not alert them in enough time that they would like have a full phone interview to re-enroll. So like in Renee's case, she got a letter three weeks after the date that was in the letter that said she had a phone interview to re-register her benefits. Oh, wow. So she then had already gone through several months of fighting to just get back on benefits. And then she got back pay, which is why she had, you know, thousands of dollars available in benefits because she had not had it for several months. Um, and then within a couple of weeks after she was reinstated, they got stolen. Um, and I can, do you want me to keep on going or go into that a little well, bit? Well, I wanted to ask, I, and yeah, we will want to um, share sort of how, how that all sort of turned out and sort of what those next steps were. But when you're looking for a story, because you're kind of coming at it from, you know, looking at the big picture and then winnowing down, um, what are the other areas that you kind of, look at? So you had your Facebook groups, but were you trying to get data from, you know, the, the, the state about who had benefits and who didn't? And, you know, sort of like, how do you start to sketch out that idea in the big picture? And then how do you also kind of get a handle on, well, you know, a lot of people are talking about this problem, but, you know, what's the severity of, of the problem? How do you get a handle on that? So there were there were a couple things we did. So like the first thing was I put out a Google form that asked for people to like if they were willing to speak with me to fill it out and kind of like give some basic information about like how much was stolen, when was it stolen, um, what like type of interactions did you have with DHS, did you file a police report, those types of things. And you know, we we got a lot of responses. Mm-hmm. And then at the time DHS, the Department of Human Services, actually started releasing the stats on how much um, welfare benefits was being reported stolen to them. And like, it was skyrocketing. Like in 2021, I mean, the number was in like the tens of thousands. And then in 2022 to 2023, it was skyrocketing to hundreds of thousands of dollars. And now it's been over a million dollars was stolen. Um, which again, you know, in a state like Maryland where there is, you know, huge billion dollar surpluses, Um, That's a drop in the bucket, but people still weren't getting reimbursed. Um, Mm -hmm. 
So we knew that based on that exponential jump in welfare theft compared to 2021 to 2022, as well as just the sheer number of people who are willing to talk with us and whose stories were the same, you know, like that there was a lot of consistency in what was happening. For example, like a lot of people's benefits were being used out of state. A lot of people's benefits were being used like in Renee's case, hers were being used in D.C. while she was in Maryland using them 50 miles away at the same time. So, Mm -hmm. like, there was just, like, a lot of clear hints that, like, these people aren't making it up. Like, there's just physically no way that they could be spending this money in this way. Um, And part of the reason that I latched on to Renee's story like I did is because when she was commenting in the group, she was already telling people in the comments all this work that she'd done, which is she'd called everybody she could think of, whether it was lawmakers, whether it was the police, whether it was the Department of Human Services, but she also called the stores. Mm -hmm. And she was able to get screenshots of security footage from a sympathetic store employee at one of the places her benefits were used. And when I heard there were visuals, it was, it kind of felt like, you know, there was blood in the water. And so I wanted to keep on tracking that down and see if we could actually get more visuals and then be able to find a pattern among those visuals of who were using her benefits. Well, and that was, I thought, really compelling. And if you haven't read the story, it published in uh, September 9th of 2022 uh, at the Baltimore Banner website. And you can literally just search for one woman's quest for justice after almost $3,000 worth of benefits were stolen and it'll come right up for you. Um, But the the multimedia aspect of it, tell us a little bit more about uh, ways that you kind of personalize that story because it could be this huge, you know, like it's a huge data story, but it's so personal and so important um, for the individuals affected. How do you, how do you tell that story visually, especially when we're looking at grainy footage? Yeah. So, I mean, the biggest thing I learned at the New York Times when I was their visual investigations fellow um, was that the way that they approached storytelling and visuals was that, you know, to be clear, every story that the New York Times produces visually is slick and beautiful and compelling. And that is super important to visual storytelling. But the banner, amazing place. We have great funding. Everything's going great. We don't have the same resources and production value, right? Sure. So when I came to the banner, my goal, knowing that the ways that I was going to be using visuals and reporting was really different and going to be different, the key thing was that the visuals needed to be investigative findings. They weren't there to be pretty. They weren't there for B-roll. They weren't there as filler. They were there to be critical and to show people something they wouldn't otherwise know if the visual wasn't there. Um, so even when you look at the multimedia aspect to this story, it has a couple videos basically embedded throughout. It's not super high tech. It's not this like cutting edge display or anything like that, but the videos themselves were such key investigative findings that I think people found it really compelling. Mm -hmm. Um, so basically what like, you know, the reason I decided to focus it through Renee's perspective as well was because her story was so exceptional. And I think that, well, I I take that back. It was exceptional, but it was also so emblematic at the same time. Like it it was so standard, but also she was such a compelling person, right? And she Mm -hmm. 
And she hit all the marks. I mean, she was ignored by the police, by the, by DHS, but, and, or maybe ineffectually helped, mm-hmm. um, by store employees. Like she basically checked all the boxes of, of entities that ignored the problem. Mm-hmm. And so you're right. It, it felt very emblematic, but also very, um, like very, uh, uh com- like compelling, but also wide ranging because yeah. she hit everything. Yeah. And so do you want me to keep on going about like what happened? Well, did she ever get those benefits back? I, I think the story is kind of so. No, but it took, okay. So here's, <laughs> yes, but this is what happened. She gets her benefits stolen. She and I go and like we meet up. She um, was having issues with her car and she's a really nervous driver. She doesn't like to drive on highways. So my editor gave me the okay that I went and drove her to the stores where her benefits were used. And we went and like asked for security footage from those stores, um, which was like an interesting journey. But we got security footage from two stores that showed that the same people were using her benefits for the same, you know, amounts that her... um, benefits were like the same amounts of chunks of transactions that her benefits were being used that were stolen from. So that happened. We wrote the story. She, um, basically the story initially in September ends with her being like updating the police. She finds out the police officer who was assigned to her case blocked her phone number. Um, yeah. And so she kind of ends the story being like, I've told all these people, they say they're going to look into my request. I'm appealing the decision, basically DHS, to Renee and most people who got their benefits stolen, when they reported it stolen, would send them a letter saying, you're not getting your benefits back, but you can appeal Mm -hmm. this decision. So she decided at the end of the story to appeal the decision. And through the story publishing, she was able to get um, a pro bono lawyer to help represent her in that appeals case, which was amazing. But then they went through the whole appeals process and um, she still got denied because there wasn't Maryland state law specifically specifying that you needed to reimburse people with benefits theft. Mm. But her story was out there. And by that time, too, her story had gotten attention by um, a podcast called This American Life, um, mm-hmm. which is, you know, a giant national podcast. And her story got told on there in January, which was um, the beginning of the Maryland uh, state legislator session. Mm-hmm. And so her um, similarly, her lawyer who was representing her was also instrumental in drafting legislation for just social policy in general in the state and was able to use her story to inform state law to help reinforce reimburse people with benefits theft. Similarly, her story was cited in several congressional studies and both bipartisan on study committees for Republican and Democrats um, that basically were using her story to in a federal bill passed at the spending bill passed at the end of December, 2022, arguing for people who were getting SNAP benefits stolen to get reimbursed as well. So her story basically helped change at a federal and local level legislation so that people can start getting reimbursed. And once the state law was passed, she was able to get her benefits back. Um, what an amazing catalyst. Like, how does that make you feel to, to know that you kind of brought that story out? I I mean, amazing, but also like, I think in journalism, I was like a vessel for that story. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. Like that story was going to be intriguing no matter how it was written or how it was told. Right. And like, 
in some ways I still <laughs> read it. I, I think all most journals struggles with, but like any clip that you have, even if it's, you're really proud of it, you can read it back and be like, oh my God, I, I can't <laughs> read this. I just really, it didn't have a lot to do with me. I, if anything, was just kind of the lucky one that got to be the one to tell the story. But like, this was Renee's life and this is her her voice and what she decided to do and show. And she was the one that wanted to speak with me. She was the one that fought for all of this, right? Like, I I think that this has been something that I, I, I am really proud of it, but like, it's not my accomplishment and it's not my life or my story. Like it's, it's because of Renee that this all happened. Well, and I, thank you for that. Cause I feel like um, having, bringing those stories to light is why journalism is there, you know, that, that you are sort of that pathway for important stories to be told and it can be a catalyst. And I think also the way local journalism, it's so important to focus on local journalism because that's where those stories are occurring. You know, there's, um, they affect real people and those real people can make change. So I think that's just important to, you know, kind of keep, um, keep at the forefront. Um, I wanted to switch just a little bit and ask you about open source investigations. So you've done so much investigatory work in your, in your career, and they've been sort of wide ranging, sort of big data set uh, investigations on complex topics, like your real deal and know about cryptocurrency yeah. and things like that, which are very, um, confusing topics. So how do you, can you tell our listeners a little bit about what open source investigations are and how they're different from maybe other types of investigatory journalism? I mean, I'd argue that they're not. I think that, um, yeah, it. I know, it's so like, I, this is a, con no, this isn't controversial. A lot of people who are in like the OSINT world, the open source investigations world, we all kind of hate that term. Um, the reason we hate that term is because it sounds like fancy and verbose and like something that is like highly technical that nobody can do. Right. But all it's basically saying is that like, I'm really good at finding stuff on the internet. That's it. And like, take your average scorned, like 20 something year old girl who's stalking her ex-boyfriend and she is just as good as any open source investigator out there. Oh, you know? for sure. Maybe like, even better. Try being a mom trying to find out about somebody. <laughs> A child's boyfriend or girlfriend. Yeah, you have not exactly. seen investigatory things like that in a long time. <laughs> exactly. And like, so basically what I think actually OSINT is emblematic of is just how the internet is changing investigative reporting. But it's, this is something where, you know, we, we're talking about it like a different skill set right now, but in five years, it's not going to be OSINT or whatever. It's just going to be reporting. Like, and this is something that a lot of local journalists do all the time already. And a lot of print journalists do all the time already. And I think that, you know, this, this, this idea of OSINT as an investigative tool, is something that's really come to light through, you know, visual investigations at the times really pioneered bringing this into mainstream journalism, the idea of using OSINT regularly, well, people are already doing it a lot. Um, and they, they were using OSINT, essentially like how I explain to people how like my visual reporting skill set is that like, I, I'm not a videographer. I'm not a photographer. I don't create visuals. I find them. And I think that that's something that you can do online in the age of social media and the, in the age of having satellite imagery online that you can search through things and stuff like that. Like that is kind of all OSINT is, is like kind of showing that 
over time expanded skill set than investigative journalists have to aid their reporting. Um, but mm-hmm. it's really based in, in you know, just being really good at using social media online, knowing how to, like, be really good at Google, knowing how to, you know, look at an image online and verify it with satellite imagery. It's it's stuff that is very learnable and teachable, and it's not as inaccessible or as people might think it is. Mm-hmm. Well, I think when you when you say it's accessible, it's also accessible to everyone. I mean, like sometimes when you're looking at, you know, oh, I need a data set from, um, you know, from the state court system or from DHS, you know, that takes some maneuvering. And although you have access under the freedom of information laws, so you can, you know, ordinary citizens can go and do that and have the right to do that. It's a little bit easier, I think, for people to relate um, their skills on the internet to say, oh, okay, with a little bit of training, I can verify, you know, like I can use my Google lens to find other similar images and things mm-hmm. like that. Um, so it, it sounds like in your view, this is sort of just the next frontier um, of, of using open source data for journalism. Am I getting that right? I mean, but like also in the idea of like open source data is something that's always been a part of journalism. Like what's public records? It's open source, right? It might not be like on the internet, but it's like available to the public. That's really all open source means. So like investigative journalists have been using open source investigation or tools since like time and memoriam, right? Like it's, it's not, um, it's, it's a new word for an old thing with a couple new tools within it is how I see it. Which actually I think is such a great sort of way um, of, of looking at it because content is always going to be the center. You know, I think in journalism, people get really hung up on the format. Is it online? Is it print? Is it this? Is it that? And really you're telling stories that affect people and are, and are um, seeking to, you know, show situations that would not have come to light otherwise. And at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter, you know, did it come from a piece of paper? Did it come from, you know, did it come from the web? You're shaping that story with the standards of journalism to objectively, as best you can, tell a story or be the vessel for that story. Um, Yeah. And I mean, I will say too, like, the best visual investigations, my favorite ones, at least, um, the best visual investigations that I go to for like inspiration or my, some of the works that I'm proudest of that are visual investigative and stuff like that. Um, it doesn't start from me just like sitting online necessarily. Well, I guess like the Renee one technically started with me just like being on Facebook, looking at stuff. Right. But like the best ones, the heart of the story, the heartbeat of the story, isn't just like finding a really good image online. It's, having a person being willing to tell their story. And that's like something that's just, I think, standard throughout any medium or form of journalism. What a great way to end our time, because it is all about those individual people telling their stories. And thank you for being the vessel to tell that story and also for your award-winning work. I can't wait to see what you're coming up with next. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to Five Dubs with Rebecca Snyder. Please subscribe and leave us a five-star review wherever you download your podcasts so that others can find us. What do you want to know about local journalism? Email me at rsnyder, S-N-Y-D-E-R, at mddcpress.com. Interested in supporting our podcast and journalism? 
please donate to our 501c3 Press Foundation. Find out more and see the full episode list and show notes at www.5-dubs.com.